Today's episode of Food Psych is brought to you by Bobble Bar. Bobble Bar designs jewelry and accessories that make it easy to experiment with different trends. Like animal-themed jewelry is a thing right now, and I'm really into lions, so I just got a necklace with a gold lion on it that I'm really psyched about. You can get 20% off your purchase when you visit BobbleBar.com and use the promo code PSYCH. That's BobbleBar, B-A-U-B-L-E-B-A-R.com, and get 20% off using promo code PSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 127 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today's episode is a special format. It's a special edition. It's a little different than our usual interview style. So today's guest is my administrative and community manager, Ashley Saruya, and she's interviewing me about the basics of health at every size and intuitive eating for anyone who's new to these concepts, as well as some more nuanced and kind of advanced discussions around size acceptance and weight stigma and diet culture and lots more. So I wanted to create this episode to have a single episode to point to when people ask, where should I start with the podcast? Or, you know, how do I educate? the people in my life about these ideas, like what's an episode I can give them to sort of download all this information into their brain. So that's why we created this episode. And the first half of this episode will definitely give you that resource to give to other people and also to get started yourself. And the second half gets really juicy because that's where we discuss some advanced topics like how to handle troll questions about size acceptance and why I'm so vocal about these issues, you know, as a person in a smaller body and what it's what it's like to be speaking out about these issues of size acceptance as a person in a smaller body and how eating disorder recovery and quote-unquote healthy eating fit in with intuitive eating and lots more. So it's great. It's packed with lots of good stuff, and I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. This week, I'm not going to answer a listener question since basically the whole episode is me answering questions, but we'll resume that regular format next week, and you can still submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode by going to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And then speaking of questions, this episode is a lot like the exclusive episodes I do for my Intuitive Eating Fundamentals course. So if you like this one, you'll love the course. It gives you answers to hundreds of your fellow participants' questions, as well as your very own questions that you can ask when you become a member, plus a private Facebook group just for course participants that's incredibly supportive and safe and wonderful. And you can connect with me there and connect with other people in the group to get support as well. Plus, there are 13 modules of incredibly rich multimedia content to help you become an intuitive eater and leave diet culture behind. Learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. And from now through the end of October, I'm still giving 10% of all my online store sales to hurricane relief efforts. So if you're listening to this the day it comes out, you still have a little over a week to get in there and to contribute. So if you've been waiting for a special occasion to buy the course, this is a really good one because it's for a good cause. 
All right. So now without any further ado, let's go to my conversation with Ashley Saroya. She's going to dive right in with the first question. Cool. All right. So our very first question, very basic. What is intuitive eating? Right. So intuitive eating is pretty much the default mode. Like I always say, it's the way we're born knowing how to eat, right? We have innate cues about hunger and fullness and satisfaction. And we don't think much about it when we're babies, right? We we cry to be fed when we're hungry. We know to stop when we're full. We eat what seems good to us. And, you know, that's pretty much it. No babies are thinking about calories, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but then through diet culture, which is the water that we swim in. We'll talk a little bit more about diet culture later, but diet culture is basically the culture we live in that is constantly telling us about weight loss and good foods versus bad foods and what we should eat and shouldn't eat. And, you know, when we're socialized in diet culture, we really lose our connection to that innate knowing that we're born with. So intuitive eating in the sense that I'm an intuitive eating coach or counselor, it's a practice for restoring that connection with your body and with food. So relearning and and practicing the process or the principles of intuitive eating. And so there are 10 principles developed by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch, who are fellow registered dietitians. And they developed the concept of intuitive eating in the 1990s. But it was really based on this research and sort of long-term understanding of how people are born eating and also the work being done in the eating disorder treatment community. That was a pretty big influence on them as well and, and sort of defining what intuitive eating means. So they defined 10 principles of intuitive eating, which are reject the diet mentality, honor your hunger, make peace with food, challenge the food police, feel your fullness, seek satisfaction and pleasure, learn to honor your feelings without using food, without needing food, respect your body, engage in joyful movement as opposed to punishing exercise, and then honor your body with gentle nutrition. And gentle nutrition comes at the end, I want to emphasize, because their philosophy and really what I've found in my practice also works the best is in diet culture, we're inundated with talk about nutrition. It's everywhere we look. And it's all from this place of eat right so that you don't gain weight or so that your health is optimal and you're as pure and as cleansed as can be, right? It's got all these messages intertwined with it that are very much wrapped up in diet culture, which again, we'll define a little bit later. But Gentle nutrition is about kind of stripping away all the diet culture first and getting to a place where we can really tune into messages about nutrition in a way that's not going to trigger the diet mentality thinking. And also, you'll notice that rejecting the diet mentality is the first principle, and it's that way for a reason, too, because that's really the foundation upon which we can build all the other principles and get back to a place where our bodies are in charge and really... I say our bodies, but it's it's our body and our brain working together. Like your body and your brain can't function independently. You know, you couldn't just be a brain in a jar or a body without a brain, right? We would <laughs> die. <laughs> so, you know, intuitive eating is the, the intuitive eating that we're born with is that innate connection between body and brain. Like your body signals hunger and your brain sounds the hunger alarm bell that tells you, oh, it's time to eat, you know, or I need to seek out food. And your body signals fullness through various hormonal mechanisms and physiological mechanisms and your brain senses, yeah, I'm kind of done with this meal. And satisfaction, same thing, right? Your body 
is picking up cues from the environment like, oh, that smells really good or that I remember that tasting really good or this has real visual appeal or I love the, the sort of colors of this food or whatever, right? You're getting all these messages from your environment and then your brain is interpreting them and saying like, oh, that seems satisfying. Like, that's what I want, right? So you're, you know, when it's functioning normally, intuitive eating is a really strong connection between your body and your brain. But diet culture really severs that connection. It's like, like your body wants one thing and it's telling you you're hungry, right? Or you want a particular food and your brain is saying, but no, the diet says I can't do that, right? Or I'm trying to lose weight, so I'm not going to eat when I'm hungry or whatever. And so you get into this place where your body and your brain are fighting each other. And so intuitive eating is about, you know, all of those principles that I talked about obviously have a lot more to them than just this broad heading that I've given. But like each of those principles is about doing different things to get your body and your brain reconnected and to reconnect you to that innate sense of, yeah, I've got this. I know how to eat. I know how to feed myself. So yeah, that's intuitive eating. And I'll say like, I'm an intuitive eating coach and counselor, right? So my role there is just to help facilitate that reconnection between body and brain. I'm not here to tell people how to eat, right? And I believe that people don't actually need to be told how to eat or how much to eat or what to eat once they reconnect their body and their brain in that way that we're innately born knowing how to do. People can trust themselves, trust their bodies, trust their minds as to what they want to eat and how much and when without needing outside intervention and without needing a dietitian telling them eat XYZ and having to live on a plan for the rest of their life. So my role is basically, you know, to help people get out of their own way and strip away the diet culture stuff that's really been embedded in their minds and learn to accept their bodies and accept themselves so that they can reconnect to their relationship with food and then be on their way. And I don't have to be a part of it, you know, other than to like support them and cheer them on. Yeah. And I think it's also important to remember that they're called principles rather than steps. That's something that I think about a lot. You know, you mentioned that acknowledging and breaking down the diet mentality is, you know, the first principle. And really and truly, that's something I think we do all day, every day throughout our lives because we live in diet culture. And it's not step one because it, it's a step that you have to just deal with throughout. And I think it's really great that they're called principles rather than steps because it really takes it also outside of the paradigm of diets, which sort of do have these really regimented steps and don't really make room for, you know, the way that our brains work and our bodies function, which isn't, it isn't quite so strict. Yeah, that's a great point. Like, and then they're not called rules either, right? They're, right. they're principles because they can guide you in deciding what to do in any given moment or, you know, help you reconnect to what you really need. But it's not rules that you have to follow, right? They're not, it's not black and white. It's not linear. The journey to recovery is so up and down. And so, yeah, it's not like you have to do these things and you've checked the step off and then you can go on to the next step. It's like, they're all happening all the time, you know, and you're sort of cycling through them again and again. Yeah, especially because, you know, you have, you know, triggers come up and, and struggles come up, body changes come up. And so you have to revisit older principles and go back and go forward. And, and it really, I think, is really great, a really good allegory for, you know, how recovery isn't linear, whether it's recovery from an eating disorder or chronic dieting. Um, the other thing uh, I wanted to mention, um, and I believe you've actually told me this, um, Evelyn and Elise say that if they could add another principle, it would be self-care. And that's just something I wanted to highlight. It's something you talk about a lot, self-care, not self-control. It's really an important part of the process, especially just for our mental health, which really and truly, it's a mental health process, which is why it's so hard. Um. Yeah, totally. <laughs> 
and mental health and physical health are so intertwined. And, you know, overall health has so much more to do with mental health than we give it credit for, you know, like absolutely. It's considered, and we'll talk about this later too. You know, I know you have some questions about nutrition that we're going to get into. And the point that I want to make now about intuitive eating is just like nutrition is part of it. Like gentle nutrition is the 10th principle, but it's the 10th out of 10, right? It's not, right. <laughs> it's not the most important. It's not the most central. And it happens after you've already worked through sussing out all the diet mentality stuff that can stand in the way of thinking about nutrition in a really positive way. Yeah. I always say that, it, you know, it's time to tackle gentle nutrition when you've stopped worrying about nutrition. Yes. That's great. Okay. Question two, what is health at every size? Yeah. So health at every size is a healthcare philosophy that incorporates intuitive eating, but also some other ways of taking care of your health. And it acknowledges all the research, because there's a ton of research now showing that intentional weight loss doesn't work and actually causes more harm than good, makes people less healthy in the long run. And so Health at Every Size seeks to help people improve their health and be empowered to improve their health in a weight-neutral way. And weight-neutral means it doesn't matter if they lose weight or gain weight or stay the same, like whatever happens to their weight is just an outcome of various factors, really. But if their weight happens to change when they're taking better care of themselves and prioritizing their health in these weight neutral ways, then so be it. But we're not seeking to change people's weight as a way to improve their health because we know that that doesn't actually work, right? Like especially, I mean, it's more complicated when you're talking about weight gain from a restrictive eating disorder. So I want to sort of sidebar that for a second and come back to it. But like health at every size with regard to what we're told in diet culture all the time, which is like, if you're in a larger body, you should lose weight. Or if you're in any size body, you should lose weight. Really, that's right. the, the <laughs> drumbeat of diet culture and is often linked to people's health or, you know, it's it's not really your health is not dependent on your weight, but we're told constantly that it is, right? And that if you have any health issue and you happen to be in a larger body, that weight loss is the solution. And meanwhile, a person in a smaller body who had that complaint, say like knee pain or joint pain or whatever, you know, just various things that often get blamed on weight, diabetes, heart disease, et cetera, a smaller bodied person would be given evidence-based medicine that would help with that particular problem. And a larger bodied person would be told, lose weight and then we'll talk. And that actually has really negative effects on people's health because if people get that advice, A, intentional weight loss doesn't work, like I said. So research shows that 95% or more of people who try to intentionally lose weight end up regaining all the weight they lost. And two thirds of those end up regaining more weight than they lost. So ending up heavier. So really, there's like this tiny, tiny percentage of people who can intentionally lose weight and keep it off in the long term. And also, when you look at that tiny percentage of people who do that, and the behaviors that they're doing in order to maintain that weight loss, it's very clear that they're engaging in disordered eating behaviors and disordered exercise behaviors that rule their life and that are detracting from their mental health. And that in a person who who had started in a thinner body would be categorized as anorexia nervosa or some sort of eating disorder. But people in larger bodies don't get diagnosed with eating disorders when they lose weight and are considered weight loss success stories, right? They get praised. They get asked what their secret is. They get put in charge of Weight Watchers meetings and whatever, right? And, and they're, you know, it's a genetic fluke that that tiny percentage of people can do that because the way that our brains are designed and our bodies are designed is that 
if we sense, if our brains sense that we've dipped below a certain set point weight range that they are programmed to maintain, they sense starvation, they sense famine, right? And in our evolutionary history, that was really good. And we, none of us would be here listening to this today if it weren't for that mechanism in in our ancestors' brains keeping us alive in times of famine, right? So when we sense famine, we're programmed to seek out food extra a lot, you know, like we're programmed to to have, <laughs> you know, extra a lot. Extra like a lot. <laughs> yeah, there's probably a better way to say that. But. <laughs> no, I think it works. <laughs> but yeah, you know, we have like such huge drives to seek out food. We're hungrier. We're less likely to stop eating. Our hunger and fullness cues get sort of out of whack to prioritize gaining back the weight and getting back into a place where our brains and our bodies sense we're safe and we're not going to be harmed by famine. And so, and actually the mechanism of regaining more weight than you lost is thought to be an evolutionary benefit as well, because if you live in a place with famine and you've experienced it once and your body has dropped below that set weight range that your brain is trying to defend, your brain is programmed to say, let's gain more weight than we lost so that we have an extra reserve because we live in a place with famines and don't want to go through that again. So all of that is to say there's all this research right on the fact that diets don't work, intentional weight loss doesn't work. And health at every size is a healthcare paradigm that embraces that research and says, okay, how can we help people's health in a way that doesn't look to weight as a barometer of health to do it in a weight-neutral way, right? And so Health at Every Size is a long-standing tradition in healthcare as well, dating back to about the 70s. The first sort of non-diet approaches and weight-neutral approaches started to emerge, really gaining traction in the 80s and 90s. And Linda Bacon wrote the book Health at Every Size. It's now become sort of the eponymous text of this of this movement. So I would encourage people to check that out, especially healthcare providers in the audience who want to learn more about this paradigm. But you know, it really dates back to people like Deb Brigard and Connie Subcheck and Carmen Cool and Lisa Pearl and all of these great fat activists and healthcare providers who are looking to the fat acceptance movement and saying, like, they've really got something here. How can we bring this idea of weight neutral practice and not promoting dieting into healthcare in general and into mental health care and eating disorder recovery? And so all those people I mentioned have been on the podcast, but, you know, there's lots and lots more who were really central kind of in starting this movement. And Health at Every Size advocates a weight-neutral approach to eating or a non-diet approach to eating, which really includes and means intuitive eating. There's other names that the non-diet approach can go by. You know, there's sort of other paradigms that people, you know, different dietitians have developed. Like Ellen Satter has her model of attuned eating, which is very similar to intuitive eating. There's other non-diet approaches that sort of hybridize, you know, draw from both of those. But basically, non-diet approach equals that mind-body connection that I was talking about that we're all born with, aka intuitive eating or attuned eating. And so Health at Every Size advocates for that as a way for people to take care of their nutritional needs and their food needs and also, you know, their movement needs, right? With intuitive eating, one of the principles is gentle movement or joyful movement. And there's other practices as well, you know, with with health at every size of self-care, right? And so, you know, getting enough sleep, going to the doctor, finding doctors who won't stigmatize you for your weight and helping yourself recover from stigma. Health at every size, we'll talk a little more about stigma in a bit too, but health at every size is a, a paradigm for helping reduce the toll of weight stigma on people who live in larger bodies. And that's a, an important role that it has for people's mental health as well. So yeah, there's a lot more I could probably say about health at every size, but I think those are the the main points. 
Yeah, no, there definitely is. I think the one thing I would want to add to everything that you've said, which sort of goes along with the set point theory that you talked about, is that health at every size really embraces this idea. And it's not just an idea, it's very much backed by research that our size is determined so much by our genetics. And so it really embraces size diversity. So there's all, of course, the fat acceptance portion of health at every size that you talked about. And I'll link to all of those food psych episodes that you mentioned. But, you know, I think it's really important to highlight that health at every size really does promote this idea that our bodies really know what size they want to be at when we're in tune with our intuitive selves. And there's really no reason to fight them because our bodies are a lot smarter than we give them credit for. You know, you just described all these different ways that our bodies try to keep us alive in times of famine. Those mechanisms are there for a reason. And when we fight them, as we do with diet culture, they rebel because you're trying to hurt them. (laughs) You know, you really are. You're attempting to hurt yourself in, in many ways, even if it doesn't seem that way. And even if diet culture really normalizes that experience. Totally. And that's reminding me, actually, of what I wanted to say about eating disorder recovery and people who have suppressed their weight through an eating disorder and have been told by medical professionals they need to weight restore. So that's I I sort of hold that as a sort of sidebar to health at every size, because I want to say like health at every size doesn't mean that you're automatically healthy, whatever size you're at. Right. That like that you're the size you're at now will support health no matter what. That's true, certainly at the at the higher end of the spectrum. Right. That people's, you know, people in larger bodies can be perfectly healthy at the size they're at now without losing any weight whatsoever. But for people who are in weight suppressed bodies from an eating disorder, the real driver of the problem here is the restriction, the bulimia, the abuse of medications, whatever, you know, the overexercise, like whatever people are doing to suppress their weight, like those behaviors are the cause of the weight suppression. And it's not about the weight itself. It's about taking those behaviors away and allowing the body to restore to a weight that's appropriate for it and genetically determined for it, right, without those behaviors being in place. So eating disorders aren't all about the weight. However, being in a weight suppressed body from an eating disorder I just don't want anyone to sort of delude themselves or let their eating disorder really delude them into thinking that, oh, this is fine because Christy says health at every size. And, you know, like, no, that's that's not true. Right. So, like, if your weight is is low because of those because of an eating disorder, the thing to do is to let go of the eating disorder and let your weight increase to where it wants to to land when you're truly practicing first eating disorder recovery, ideally with a really good and experienced treatment team who gets intuitive eating and health at every size, as well as the the mechanics of eating disorder recovery. And then finally, you know, later on in your recovery, once you've been behavior free for a while, really embracing the principles of intuitive eating fully and getting back to letting your body guide you and really, you know, doing that reconnection of body and brain that I was talking about. Yeah. So for eating disorder recovery, health at every size has a place as well, but it doesn't mean you're healthy at the size you're at now, even if your weight is suppressed and your doctors are telling you to gain weight, right? That's not that's not what it means. Yeah. yeah. Very important point. Okay. So we've sort of gotten into this a little bit with your discussion there, but this next question is, what's the connection between eating disorder recovery, chronic dieting, health at every size, and intuitive eating? 
which is basically everything we cover in the podcast. <laughs> yes, such a great question. And, you know, a little sort of background to this. I mean, as I mentioned before, like some of the history of intuitive eating and health at every size comes out of, in part, the eating disorder treatment community. And I first discovered intuitive eating myself in the final stages of recovery from my own eating disorder. And it helped me to really, I had been an intuitive eater for, you know, 19 or 20 years before I developed my eating disorder in college. And so when I finally, reached a point of recovery where I could do intuitive eating again, it was like, oh, right, I get this. Like, this makes a lot of sense because I had a pretty long history of, of you know, doing it already and I recognized how to do it. Sometimes it can take a lot longer, especially for people who've, you know, had an eating disorder for a long time to really click into intuitive eating again. So, it, you know, I want to emphasize that it's in the final stages of eating disorder recovery that intuitive eating can happen. But, you know, imagine my surprise when I started working in the eating disorder recovery field and learned that intuitive eating is generally considered the gold standard of how to sort of treat people to full recovery, right? Once people are in full recovery, they're recommended to, to learn intuitive eating. And that's that's sort of the, the hallmark of full recovery is getting back to that place. So, you know, intuitive eating has a real, a real place in eating disorder treatment for that reason. And health at every size is really important for recovery from both eating disorders and chronic dieting. And I should say chronic dieting and eating disorders are on a spectrum, right? So eating disorders are like the full-blown diagnosed. You go to the doctor or treatment center and, and they say like, yeah, you have a problem, whatever, right? But there's a lot of disordered eating on the spectrum that doesn't fall into that sort of generally recognized category. And it's partly because of weight bias, which we'll talk about shortly, and systemic fat phobia and stuff like that, where people in larger bodies who have eating disorders are often not recognized as having eating disorders because they're in larger bodies. And people with chronic dieting or just sort of disordered eating that's subclinical, that doesn't meet the the clinical criteria because it's the criteria for eating disorders are like you're engaging in a behavior, you know, two or more times per week or whatever. There's all these specific criteria for each diagnosis. Well, if you're if you're engaging in those behaviors less than that amount of time, but it's still, you know, obviously causing you distress and, you know, really we're not meant to be engaging in those disordered behaviors whatsoever. So obviously it's going to be preventing you from having a really balanced and intuitive relationship with food if you're engaging in any sort of disordered behaviors. So I always say, you know, disordered eating, eating disorder, it doesn't really matter what you call it. It doesn't matter what your diagnosis is or that you don't have a formal diagnosis. Many, many more people have disordered eating without a formal diagnosis than with one. Absolutely. Hear ye, hear ye. <laughs> <laughs> disordered eating is rampant. You know, some research shows 75% of American women have some form of disordered eating. And that includes, so it's like 65% have subclinical disordered eating, 10% have a full-blown eating disorder. And I think that number, I mean, that number is from a number of years ago. That's about like 10 years ago or something. And I think it's probably maybe different now, right? Yeah. So yeah. Point being, like, there's many more people who have disordered eating and don't have an eating disorder diagnosis, but whatever, and chronic dieting, I would I would call disordered eating as well, right? Always being on a diet, yo-yoing from one diet to another. So 
all of those things on that spectrum, health at every size plays a really important role because if you're trying to promote full recovery from disordered eating of any kind and prevent relapse, you know, and prevent from sliding back into the chronic dieting, the disordered eating, the eating disorder, what we really need to do is take the focus off of the pursuit of thinness, the pursuit of weight loss, the pursuit of purity, you know, in eating and having good and bad foods because orthorexia now is an emerging eating disorder. Orthorexia is defined as the unhealthy obsession with healthy eating. So fixating too much on purity and cutting out foods, eliminating foods, stuff like that is also a big risk factor for orthorexia and eating disorders in general. So health at every size is really important for recovery from all that stuff because it takes the focus off of weight. It helps you prioritize your health and do things to support your health that have nothing to do with your size or with manipulating your food or your body, right? It's teaching you intuitive eating, teaching you non-diet approaches to food and movement and self-care practices that you can do no matter what your size is, no matter what your weight is, that will help you feel your best. And again, I should say, or I, I should say for the first time, that <laughs> <laughs> that health is not a moral obligation. We'll talk about this a little more later, too, but people are not morally obligated to pursue health. Health might be a different priority level for people throughout the course of their lives. Sometimes they have more time to devote to it or mental energy to devote to it. Sometimes they have less. It's not a barometer of your worthiness if you're pursuing health or not. So sometimes the best thing for people, especially in recovery from orthorexia, is to let go of pursuing health. And for people with low income limitations or physical disabilities or other special needs that they need to prioritize and sort of focus on just getting through the day, right? Mental health issues, et cetera. Like sometimes just getting through the day and managing your life is the best you can do. And that's a foundation for health too, right? You don't have to be prioritizing quote unquote healthy eating as it's currently defined in our society or instrumental exercise to quote unquote achieve fitness. You can just be like affording food that month or getting out of bed one day and reaching out to someone for connection or just showering, just showering. Yeah. <laughs> getting a scooter or a mobility aid to help you get around like all of these little things that are, are part of self-care for people in different stages of their lives or with different abilities like those are are health promoting, too. So don't discount those little things. And health with a capital H, the way it's sold to us and marketed to us by diet culture, is not everyone's ultimate priority, nor should it be. So health is not a moral obligation. I just like to emphasize that. But health at every size is an invitation that if you want to prioritize your health or if you want to think about weight-neutral approaches to health, here are some tools for you to do that. So yeah, I think I hope that answered the question about the connection between those things. I think it definitely did. And I'll just add really quickly about what you were saying in terms of just getting through the day is as much a part of health as anything else. There was a great discussion between yourself and Carissa Enneking. Uh, I think that was episode 123. So I'll link to that in the show notes down below or in the description because that's a really wonderful episode and highlights that a lot uh, towards the end. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great episode. I love that one too. Love that one. Okay, our next question, and we've sort of touched on this, but definitely a lot to talk about in here. I have an eating disorder. Can I do intuitive eating? Ah, uh, yes. Such a good question. So I will say yes and no. 
So of those 10 principles of intuitive eating that I mentioned, right, there are definitely some that you can practice no matter what, no matter where you are in your recovery. Like rejecting the diet mentality is a huge part of eating disorder recovery, just as it is for intuitive eating wherever you fall on the disordered eating spectrum, right? Making peace with food, right, is another one that you can practice. Challenging the food police, seeking satisfaction, Respecting your body, learning to appreciate your body for what it can do for you rather than its looks or its size, etc. But there are certain principles that I think it's it's detrimental to engage in if you're if you have a full blown eating disorder and you're in the early stages of recovery. So particularly hunger and fullness, right? Because eating disorder behaviors really disconnect you from your hunger and fullness signals, and it's an eating disorder is is a real severing of that brain body connection that I was talking about, where with a restrictive eating disorder like anorexia or bulimia or eating disorder not otherwise specified, like things where you're you're really restricting and suppressing your weight and not eating enough, your brain doesn't get the signals from your body that you need to be fed the way it should. Like those those signals are sort of severed. Your digestion can slow way down. And it's, you know, all of these things like severing that connection really has to do with not having enough energy needs, your body not, not having enough energy stores to be able to meet its needs for performing these biological functions like digestion. That's why in severe eating disorder, you know, restrictive eating disorder cases, people can have gastroparesis, which is like a sort of paralyzing of the the digestive system where it stops moving. And so with these types of things, it can be really damaging to try to eat according to hunger because your hunger is not telling you how much you actually need, right? You might experience early fullness. You might not ever feel signals of hunger. And so trying to practice that principle of intuitive eating can just lead you further down the path of the restrictive eating disorder. That's not cool, right? Feeling your fullness can also be really problematic with eating disorder recovery because, like I said, you know, people can experience that early fullness, early satiety thing. People can also experience a lot of shame about how much their body needs because with especially when people are restoring weight from having suppressed their weight and again this is wherever they fall on the body mass index spectrum right people with eating disorders who've suppressed their weight need to restore weight to get to what their body wants as their biologically appropriate weight if you're focusing too much on fullness then it can really prevent you from eating as much as you need to eat in order to get back to what your body wants, right? So, you know, people a lot of people experience feeling like out of control hunger or binging. And if you put a lot of shame on that and focus too much on fullness or counsel people to eat to stop eating at the first sign of fullness or something in this that stage of eating disorder recovery where they're just needing to restore and and refuel and get nutritionally rehabilitated. That's Evelyn Triboli's word for it, nutritional rehabilitation that can be really damaging to eating disorder recovery. So particularly hunger and fullness are not something I would advise anyone in early stage eating disorder recovery to look at or focus on. Learning to honor your feelings without using food can also be problematic because eating disorders and disordered eating and chronic dieting really can create emotional eating because if you're depriving yourself and restricting yourself of food, your likelihood of emotional eating goes up. You know, partly it's driven by biological need and hunger. Partly it's driven by changes in the brain that happen when you're deprived of food. And so if you're early in the stages of recovery and you're needing to just focus on getting your needs met, but you're starting to demonize emotional eating and feel like, oh, I really should be using strategies other than food to 
cope. What's wrong with me? Ah, like it can really drive you further into that disordered mindset too. And the real thing to focus on is stopping the restriction, lifting the restrictions, and the emotional eating will usually regulate itself, right? So you can, you know, certainly start to think about coping skills other than food if you if you've been using that as your sole coping skill, right? And if you've had a really pronounced binge eating history, finding those other coping skills is very useful. But demonizing the behavior too much is is problematic in eating disorder recovery. And so I really wouldn't focus on that too much. Also gentle nutrition and joyful movement should definitely be held till the very end of eating disorder recovery, really when people are ready for the full expression of intuitive eating, because those can also get very muddied with eating disorder thoughts, diet mentality thoughts, focusing too much on nutrition or engaging in exercise or movement before your body is biologically ready for it, right? Like has reached a point of medical stability, could actually be really harmful to you physically and and set you back in your recovery. So that's why a lot of eating disorder treatment centers will prevent people from exercising until they've reached a certain point of medical stability. Those are the principles of intuitive eating I would avoid in eating disorder recovery. And as Evelyn Triboli says, there's this concept of nutritional rehabilitation, which is that you need to be it's it's like putting a cast on a broken bone. You know, you need to have the bone heal and the bone in this case is the eating disorder, right? You need to heal from that with some structure and some support and get back into a place where, you know, the bone is growing normally, right? Rather than trying to put weight on it or use it or or move it in a way that, you know, if the bone is still broken, could be really damaging and prevent it from ever fully healing, right? So nutritional rehabilitation from an eating disorder can look like a meal plan from an experienced eating disorder dietitian that gives you a minimum amount of food you need to meet to be biologically satiated and provided for so that you can start that process of medical recovery and of of getting back to, you know, medical stability and having your body get back to what the weight that it needs to be and start making reconnecting that body and brain connection. And this is particularly important for people with a restrictive tendency, whatever your eating disorder diagnosis might be, or even if you don't have a diagnosis, but if you're severely restrictive or any level of restrictive, I think focusing on having a, a supportive, you know, meal plan or support from an experienced treatment team is super important. So that's what I would say for people with eating disorder recovery and intuitive eating. It's it's about kind of taking it with caution and proceeding very carefully and, and avoiding certain principles until you've reached a real stable point in recovery. Yeah. And I would also say, hopefully, optimally working with an eating disorder dietitian who has an intuitive eating health at every size focus. The other thing I just wanted to point out, what you were discussing with emotional eating and eating disorder recovery, we've done, or you've done, three really wonderful episodes with Isabel Fox and Duke on this topic. And so I'll link to those in the show notes as well. Awesome. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next question. I'm gaining weight. Am I doing intuitive eating wrong? And how do I cope? Ah, uh, yes. Such a good question. So there's no such thing as doing it wrong, first of all, right? <laughs> like if you're if you're gaining weight in intuitive eating, it's part of your process. It doesn't mean anything is wrong. It doesn't mean anything bad about you. It's very normal to gain weight when you give up restrictive eating and dieting and start eating intuitively, right? So, you know, if you've been suppressing your weight through whatever means, dieting, disordered eating, and then you start 
letting go of those restrictions and eating intuitively, your body's getting back to the place that it wants to be, right? It's It might be gaining weight because it needs to. And intuitive eating is not a weight loss diet. It's not about deciding what weight you want to be and then getting there. It's about letting your body decide and taking control away from you mentally, period, and just letting your body's mechanisms take over. So some people might gain weight in intuitive eating because that's what they need to do. Some people might lose weight in intuitive eating because that's what their body decides is right for it, but it's not intentional. It's just It just happens. And some people maintain their weight and nothing really changes. So the way to cope with that, right, with any of those body changes is to work on body acceptance. And that's in intuitive eating, Triboli and Resch call it Respect Your Body. Linda Bacon and Lucy Aframore have a book called Body Respect that's a follow-up to Health at Every Size. Body Respect, I love this idea of body respect because it's it's hard to accept your body or God forbid, love your body, right? When you're coming from a place of hating your body. It's hard to jump from hating your body, trying to change your body, fighting against your body, to full body appreciation, body love, body positivity, that's a pretty far bridge to cross. So you need something to kind of start you there, you know, start you on your way there. And so body respect, I think, is a good place to start to just start respecting what your body does for you. Start respecting that your body has its own wisdom and gradually learning to accept it, right? Getting to a place of body acceptance, eventually body trust, putting some more trust into your body. And then maybe eventually it'll it'll come around to body love and body positivity. But some people, that's a really long journey. Some people don't experience that blissful state, but they just feel like, well, at least I can get by living in my body and I'm not constantly fighting it. We're, we've made a peace, uh, sort of truce, to, you know, so to speak. So I think that's something to to really work on in this process of intuitive eating, especially if you're gaining weight, is to start doing the mental work on how you can accept your body, how you can let go of internalized weight stigma and body shame and the things that are holding you back from really allowing your body to, to be what it needs to be. Yeah. And then just to chime in with resources again, um, <laughs> <laughs> one of our very good friends, Meredith Noble, she is a coach and she wrote this really wonderful blog piece on mourning the thin ideal and really coming to terms with weight gain and intuitive eating. Uh, we've shared it in the Food Psych Listener Crew Facebook group, and it's been very helpful to many, many people. We also did a really wonderful, or you also did, I keep saying we, I apologize. Idioma. <laughs> Olu? Olio? Aluo, yeah. Luo, excuse me. Idioma Aluo. Her episode of Food Psych really focused a lot on body acceptance and really just coming to feel at peace with your body without really pushing for body positivity or body love. That was a really wonderful episode. And then the other term I wanted to highlight is body trust. You talked about body respect, but there's also the term body trust, which Data Sturdivant and Hilary Knavey talk about a lot. And we also have episodes from them. So I'll link to all of that in the show notes as well. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. I keep forgetting that I'm waiting for you to talk. (laughs) I know. When I'm talking to people on the phone, sometimes like coaching clients, they'll be like, oh God, right. I have to talk. I thought I was listening to the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This question is also about body acceptance and body trust, uh, as well as intuitive eating. How can I trust my body if every time I try to listen to it, I end up face first in a tub of ice cream? I think this is something that we hear clients talk about a lot. Oh, yes, totally. And I was there myself, you know, when I was recovering and, and in my disordered eating place. I also had these experiences of restricting and then binging, right? So I think the first thing is just recognizing that it's not your body's fault that it's doing this. It's actually doing what it was programmed to do, you know, that evolution 
evolutionary programming that I was talking about before. Like that exists to protect you from starvation. So if you've been restricting, if you've been dieting, you know, if you think about your life before dieting, if you can remember it, and some of us can't, you know, but for those of us who can, if you have any memories of life before dieting, do you remember those kinds of experiences of out of controlness with food? Or did that only come into play after you started telling yourself that overeating was bad or that gaining weight was bad and that you needed to diet or you started dieting, right? For most people, I mean, really for pretty much everyone, eating behaviors like out of control binging don't happen unless there's a situation of deprivation. And that can be biological deprivation from food insecurity, for example, if you didn't have enough food to eat. That can be from sometimes just like a growth spurt, right? Like a lot of times kids will be gaining weight in preparation for a growth spurt and their parents or healthcare providers will shame them and make them feel terrible about it and put them on a diet or whatever. But it was your body's way of building up resources in order to be able to grow, right? And so you might feel, I had an experience, you know, in childhood that I've reflected on recently that I was like, I, I sort of always thought of it as my period of emotional eating, but I realized that actually it was my period of getting ready to grow. And I was, I was like, eating, you know, constantly and sort of soothing myself with food and and kept getting up to get more food from my, you know, days of watching TV and stuff as a <laughs> kid on the weekends. But like the shame that I felt about it was not my own shame. That was from what people and adults in my life had already taught me about weight and body size and body, you know, how much you quote unquote should eat, you know, and I was nine or 10 years old, but I had already internalized those messages. Right. And so my labeling it as emotional eating was coming from that place and the feeling of needing more food and of, of being sort of driven to seek food, I think was really more biological than anything because it wasn't a coping mechanism in and of itself, it was it, there was hunger attached to it. And the following year, I grew like five inches and I got boobs <laughs> and like I started to develop, you know, and, and we need energy. We need energy reserves to be able to do that. Right. Especially going through puberty, people's bodies need, you know, of any gender need fat stores and, and weight stores in order to be able to grow the way they're meant to grow and the way they're meant to grow. I should say gender identity is complicated and, and gets you know, the teenage years are really tricky, as I've heard from a lot of trans folks that I've talked with about this stuff. And, you know, going through puberty, when you feel like you're in the wrong body already, and then getting even more into the wrong body, because the gender expression of your right. body is becoming more pronounced is so difficult, so difficult. Yeah. So, you know, I want to just highlight that that's also something that, you know, anyone listening who's trans or gender nonconforming or anything like that, you know, might have experienced that type of reason for demonizing their body or their food or their eating or their weight, you know, that 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 gets very wrapped up in diet culture as well. Anyway, I'm getting a little off topic of the question. but No, it's super important. It's a really, really important tangent. So I'm, I'm glad we got it in there. Same. I know. It's good to talk things out. I feel like I love I love the conversational nature of the podcast because it just it's so much more rich and leads to so many more interesting places than if I were just writing something out on the screen, yeah. you know? <laughs> Absolutely. But anyway, sort of getting back to the idea of how can you trust your body if it's if it's driving you to binge or feel out of control, recognizing it's doing what it's programmed to do to protect you from starvation and that the real culprit here is dieting and restriction. The real culprit is not your body 
if it was left to its own devices, it would just binge forever and ever. That's not true. Like the reason it's doing that is dieting and restriction, right? And so recognizing that and recognizing that body trust is a process, right? Just like intuitive eating is a process. It's not these steps you go through and then you're done. It's it's a journey and it's, you know, it circles around and it winds and it comes back throughout <laughs> your life and all of this stuff. So recognizing that it's a process, learning to trust your body and that it really takes time and practice. And the longer that you can practice easing up on the restrictions, the dieting, the deprivation, the more you'll have experiences of being able to trust your body and say like, oh, wow, I feel done with this ice cream. I, I actually don't want any more. You know, I can stop. And I promise you that was something I never expected for myself either. But now I've been an intuitive eater again for, you know, eight years or something. And I really feel like it's the times when I was dieting, I thought, well, I can't have cereal in the house because I'll just finish the whole box. I can't have <laughs> chips in the house. I can't have ice cream in the house. All these things that were I mentally labeled off limits because I would end up face first in the box or bowl or whatever. With time and recovery and practicing the principles of intuitive eating, it became those foods became less and less salient. They called to me less and less to the point where now it's like, you know, we'll have five boxes of cereal in our pantry all the time and we'll just sort of work our way through them very slowly. And there's some that I've had in there for months, you know, because I I just eat it when I feel like having cereal and not because I, quote unquote, can't control myself with cereal as I had labeled it before. Right. So there's really a huge difference in when you take the restrictions and deprivations off and your body starts to trust. Body trust is really a two way process, I think, because you have to learn to trust your body, but your body has to trust you too. You know, it has to trust that you're not going to put it through another famine, that you're not going to expose it to deprivation again. And so when your body can trust you and build up enough trust in that way, it really will relax and allow you to to stop having those feelings of out of controlness. Yeah, absolutely. I, I never in my life thought I would have a freezer dried thing of Ben and Jerry's in my freezer. And yet there it is. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I just want to not to counter anything, but just to add to the narrative that you were discussing in terms of binging. I do think that food is a source of comfort and it's meant to be that way biologically. And so I know that personally, when I was dealing with some stressful times in my childhood, food was a way that I decided to cope, not consciously, of course, but you know, you get those endorphins, it, the dopamine those pleasure centers light up because that's what it's supposed to do. And so there is comfort in food. And I wasn't binging at first because of diet culture or restriction. But what, of course, ends up happening is you, and you discussed this, you're stigmatized for eating because there's this idea that if you eat a lot, you will gain weight. And we live in a very fat phobic society. So as soon as you have that stigma added in, then then the restriction comes out. And that's when the binging, at least personally for me, and I think there is this common narrative as well, that people will start off binging purely for comfort. And that's not a bad thing. And it's as soon as it it, it is attached with shame and stigma that the restriction sets in and then it becomes this vicious cycle that feels really out of control rather than comforting. You know, and that also sort of reminds me that all of these behaviors are coping mechanisms and it's when they become unsustainable and they become really debilitating to your mental health that they really need to be examined more closely. And then the other thing I wanted to add is, you know, we're talking about ending up face first in a tub of ice cream. I know that food addiction concept of quote unquote food addiction comes up a lot in this kind of conversation. And you did a really wonderful episode with Marcy Evans, who's, you know, one of the biggest names in breaking down the food addiction research in the 
anti-diet community. And so I highly, highly, highly recommend that episode for anybody who feels like they're struggling with food addiction, because I think you and I can both attest to the fact that many people who struggle with chronic dieting and eating disorders think they're like addicted to carbs. You know, that's a very common narrative. And Marcy really breaks down why the food addiction research just doesn't stand up and talks about, you know, why we might feel addicted to food. Yeah. Wonderful episode. So I'll link to that down below. Awesome. Okay, next question. And this is the nutrition question you referenced, Christy. How can I eat whatever I want if I'm concerned for my health? You're a nutritionist, so shouldn't you be telling me to eat fruits and vegetables? Yeah, right? (laughs) I get this a lot. So, you know, first of all, I'll say, I mean, as we've been talking about this whole time, health is about a lot more than what we eat, right? Eating is actually a pretty small percentage of what determines your health. Mental health plays a huge role. Socioeconomic factors that are beyond our control play a huge role. Things like discrimination and stigma that we face in society play a huge role. So, like, there's many, many things, you know, and that's not even to talk about other self-care behaviors like sleep and going to the doctor when we need to and, and stuff like that. So health is not just about nutrition. I feel like there's this myth in society right now that nutrition is the be all end all and that you can cure anything through food. And I think that has that's the way that diet culture has morphed. Like I'm working on this this piece right now actually, a piece of writing about how diet culture has shape-shifted over the years and how, you know, it used to be really overt and above board and it was about weight loss and it was about morality. Those were the two sort of twin threads sort of uniting diet culture. It was like weight loss and being a moral upright person if you were doing the right right things, quote unquote, nutritionally. And it's really gone sort of underground lately where it's it's about still morality and it's also still about weight loss, but diets don't want to say they're diets. They don't want to say they're about weight loss or they don't want to say they're, you know, it's not religion, it's clean eating, right? Or it's not dieting, it's clean eating or it's Whole30 or it's paleo or it's, you know, diets are, are marketing themselves. Even Weight Watchers is marketing itself as not a diet, but as a lifestyle, right? And all of these things are diets. They're, they're exactly the same. Their intentions are the same and their outcomes are the same as all the diets of decades past. But they've really shapeshifted and morphed to say they're not about dieting. They're about health. And so I really, as a nutritionist, you know, having gone through the traditional dietetics model and getting registered as a dietitian, I, I saw firsthand sort of how this history of diet culture still persists within the dietetics community and the nutrition community. And I see it in a lot of people who are holistic nutritionists and go through those kinds of programs as well, or health coaches going through holistic programs. We're all sort of all of us medical professionals, doctors and physicians as well, psychotherapists even, we come up in this model, medical model or holistic health model or mental health model that is steeped in diet culture that has that's very intertwined with the diet industry and diet-based beliefs about food and bodies that shape the science that we read, that shape what we're taught, what our professors believe and teach in these programs. And so being a dietitian, nutritionist, I think is a huge risk factor actually for eating disorders, disordered eating, orthorexia. And there's actually research on this too, that there's a high prevalence of orthorexia in people in dietetics programs and people who are dietitians professionally. So And there are a lot of dietitians listening, I know, and other healthcare professionals. And I think it's our duty as healthcare professionals 
obviously to do no harm, right? And diet culture does real harm. We're going to talk a little more about stigma in a minute. Diet culture does real harm to people, and it's made people's health worse and worse over the decades. And it's our responsibility to stop that harm. And that starts within. That starts with looking at our own beliefs and biases about food and weight and bodies um, and things we've learned in our education that are steeped in diet culture and rooted in fat phobia and shame and really unearthing these things and stopping the madness. So (laughs) I shouldn't actually be telling people to eat fruits and vegetables. I shouldn't be telling people what to eat whatsoever. I should be teaching people how to reconnect with their bodies and use their own innate cues to eat intuitively. And that's now what I do after years of working as a nutrition professional in the other model of telling people what to eat, of trying to increase fruit and vegetable consumption and all of that stuff. And certainly there's a place for fruits and vegetables and nutrient-dense foods in the gentle nutrition part of intuitive eating. But I rarely talk about that stuff publicly anymore because, like I said, it's the last phase of intuitive eating for a reason, right? People have to be ready to approach nutrition from this more gentle place. And if they do it too early, they can still be rooted in the diet mentality and bringing all these diet thoughts and rules or eating disorder rules to the table that prevent them from relating to nutrition in a really gentle and sustainable way. So I've actually stopped really talking about like the health benefits of particular foods and stuff like that. You know, I a couple like a year ago or so I was writing a column for Refinery29 about gentle nutrition basically and I stopped doing that. I I'm not really doing much of that public speaking about nutrition and and health. I'm I'm talking about that with people in my coaching program who are ready. And people who go through my intuitive eating online course and are ready for that module. And I have all these cautions because it's a self-paced course. So I have, you know, all this caution at first. Like, (laughs) if you feel any diet stuff coming up as you go into this module, circle back, go to the other modules, do some of the exercises again, work on rooting out the diet mentality, and then reapproach it. You know, you can wait. Like, you don't have to do this right now. And I've had people say that that have gone through that module and, and, you know, felt good about it, that they were like... This is really like all the other principles of intuitive eating that I was working through along the way. By the time I got to the gentle nutrition piece, I was like, oh, yeah, sure. That makes total sense. Like that fits right (laughs) in. And that's kind of what I've been doing anyway, you know, because gentle nutrition is, is so basic, right? It's stuff that we probably already know deep down after we strip away all the layers of, but what about gluten? But what about (laughs) dairy? But what about nightshades? Like all this crazy nonsense. And I'm sorry to use the word crazy. I'm trying not to be ableist. I think that is an ableist word, but you know, nonsense that is out there. Like we, we need to strip that all away before we can talk about nutrition from a healthful place and a healing place, you know, in the sense of mental health. Yeah. So I (laughs) don't like to talk to tell people to eat fruits and vegetables. We've all heard the advice to eat fruits and vegetables our whole lives, right? And fruits and vegetables can be very delicious and are incorporated into most cuisines the world around, right? There's things that give you fruits and vegetables in satisfying and delicious ways without having to really think about it. So by all means, eat what you like, right? But I'm more concerned about people's relationships with food and helping people develop their own barometer, get back to their own inner compass about food and nutrition, and strip away the influence of diet culture. And then just a couple of episodes that relate to what you were just talking about. Alan Levinovitz's episode about the religion of diet culture. Uh, that's a fan favorite. And I think that really relates to what you were talking about in the very, very beginning of this question. 
Also, Emily Contois' episode, which was the season five premiere about the history of diet culture. That's a really fun one. I found it extremely fascinating. Me too. (laughs) And then all of Reagan Chastain's episodes, which I believe there's been two now at this point. She talks a lot about healthcare and diet culture and how diet culture really influences our research, how we treat fat people in the, the healthcare community. And she's just absolutely brilliant. And so I'll link to all those down below. Amazing. And so our next question, and this one's super, super important. How do I make sure I don't turn intuitive eating into a diet? So huge, right? Because anything can become a diet, even intuitive eating, if you relate to it with the diet mentality, which is why in Triboli and Rush's book and the principles of intuitive eating that I teach, rejecting the diet mentality is the first principle because you have to root that out in order to not relate to intuitive eating as a diet. Isabel Fox and Duke, my wonderful colleague who we talked about earlier, who's been on three episodes now, calls it the hunger and fullness diet, you know, that you can turn intuitive eating into a diet by making diet rules that say, I can only eat when I'm hungry and I have to stop when I'm full. And that's not intuitive eating. That's the hunger and fullness diet, right? Um, So, you know, figuring out the the nuances of it and and looking at those subtleties of the diet mentality and how it could be hanging on to you is so important and it's a mentality right so it's it's subtle it colors how you see the world it's like these glasses that you have on and if you can you know take them off you'll start to see things or perceive things i should say because it's not about actual sight it's about perception of of the world right very important distinction yeah i'm trying to as i said before i'm trying to use less ableist language i've become you know more conscious of trying to root out ableism which is like you know discrimination on the basis of ability and i've realized how many of the words and metaphors that we use in our society are ableist in nature you know in origin so i'm such an auditory learner that i tend to use like listening metaphors without even thinking about it because that's how i that's how my brain works. I, I think of things as hearing, and that's probably why I was attracted to podcasting and, and did a podcast, but not everybody has hearing and has the ability to hear. So why am I using these metaphors? You know, so I'm trying, to, <laughs> trying to trying to root those out. Anyway, with rejecting the diet mentality, like I spend a ton of time on this in my intuitive eating online course and any coaching that I do on intuitive eating is circling back to that principle of rejecting the diet mentality and making sure that with each new principle, we're also looking at how the diet mentality is playing a role, how it might be popping up its head in subtle ways in that and how that principle is resonating with someone and sort of, you know, continuing to peel away those layers of diet mentality that are so ingrained in people. So I would really recommend for anyone going through the process of intuitive eating to do it with a mind towards rejecting the diet mentality in every step or every principle. And that's definitely, I think, the biggest key to not making intuitive eating into a diet. And I will say, like, there's inevitably going to be trial and error in the process of ditching the diet mentality, right? And and it's not like you just are done with it forever and then you move on. So, you know, you're going to be circling back to it. That's okay. That's that's expected in this process. And self-compassion is a huge key in that too, right? And, and having compassion with yourself for those little manifestations of the diet mentality that you thought you were done with and being like, oh, wow, crap, that's that's the diet mentality. I didn't realize it was hanging on there, you know, and recognizing like this is a common experience in our culture. This is our common humanity at this point in history right now in Western culture is that we all have these little burrowings of the diet mentality into our brain. And it sort of lives in these these little 
pockets that we didn't even recognize. And so being compassionate with yourself as you go through the process is huge. And I spend a lot of time on that in my work with people too. Okay. Question number nine. What if I am quote unquote too fat? Is there a threshold where health at every size doesn't apply anymore? Such a good question and and such a common one that people bring up when they're thinking about health at every size. So, you know, I would say no, like point blank, <laughs> first of all, no, health at every size is for everyone, right? Including people in the largest bodies. And really, no matter your size, there are things you can do to take care of your health if you so choose, if you prioritize it, right? And health includes mental health, as we've been talking about this whole time. So, That's a huge piece that gets ignored in certainly nutrition field in this day and age, but even in in regular medicine and, and sort of, you know, thinking about physical health, we're not talking enough about mental health. And one thing that research has found is a huge factor in people in larger bodies experience of health and health outcomes is weight stigma. So weight stigma is the outside stigma that people experience of living in the world in a larger body and also the internalized stigma that they feel and apply to themselves about what it means to live in a larger body. And weight stigma is a bigger factor in health than size itself. So a lot of these health conditions and outcomes that we have associated with weight, right, like diabetes, heart disease, the sort of chronic conditions that are that are typically connected to weight in the public mind, actually weight stigma has a huge bearing on those and has been shown to influence people's outcomes on those chronic disease conditions more so than, so if you compare two people who are in the same larger body category, one of whom has high internalized weight stigma and one who has low internalized weight stigma, the person with high internalized weight stigma is going to have worse health outcomes or, you know, statistically more likely to have worse health outcomes than the person with low internalized weight stigma. And of course, living in a fat phobic society, it's really hard for people in larger bodies not to have internalized weight stigma, right? And so to me as a healthcare provider, like I said, my role is first to do no harm. And I really think weight stigma does an incredible amount of harm as we've seen from the research. And so, you know, a real priority in healthcare has to be not stigmatizing our patients, right, as healthcare providers, our patients and clients, first and foremost, but also helping change society and should ch- and to change the public discourse so that stigma, weight stigma is not as prevalent and therefore people are not experiencing it as much or internalizing it as much and having negative outcomes on their health. So that's a huge thing to me, right? The weight stigma is is something we need to look at a lot more. And I will say like Health at every size is not just a healthcare philosophy. It's also about stigma resistance. It's about helping people become more resistant to stigma, more resilient from stigma, and also helping change the world so that we don't have as much stigma. And really, no matter your size, like this is a huge part of, of health at every size as well. No matter what your size is, science doesn't have a way to shrink bodies permanently. We know that from the research. There's just no known way like that 95% or more outcome that I mentioned before, right? 95% or more of people who attempt intentional weight loss will regain all the weight they lost. Two-thirds of those will gain more than they lost. And that small, you know, five or less percent of people who do maintain long-term weight loss are doing it at the expense of their mental and often physical health as well. So, you know, clearly intentional weight loss is not the solution to health, 
right? And and it doesn't work. So we have to um, find other ways of helping people take care of their bodies that don't make them weight cycle. And that's another thing too, weight cycling, right, is also associated with worse health outcomes and higher health risks than staying at a stable weight, even if that weight is larger to begin with. And so because of the abysmal statistics, the abysmal failure rate of intentional weight loss, my colleague Golda Paretsky says, all diets are yo-yo diets, right? Like all diets are going to result in weight cycling, which is those cycles of loss and regain that we call yo-yo dieting. And that has worse health outcomes than if you just stayed the same size in a larger body. So all that really points to me as, as the best way to take care of people's health is to reduce weight stigma and get them to stop dieting and help them accept their bodies and, and be resilient to stigma in their bodies, whatever size they are, rather than chasing this dragon that doesn't exist of weight loss and, and expecting that it's going to somehow help people's health. Absolutely. And I, I would say that Reagan's episodes address that a lot as well. So definitely, definitely listen to those. Um, yeah, I would also suggest, yeah, she's amazing. I would also suggest Glennis Oyston's episode for more on that topic, as well as Deb Burgard's episode. Wonderful. Okay. So our next question is what I have dubbed the troll question. (laughs) It's (laughs) something that I think Lindy West has been asked this in public forums a lot. I think anyone in a larger body or anyone who does this work is asked this question a lot. And most of the time, I think both you and I sort of just shake our heads and walk away Mm -hmm. because it's frustrating and most of the time not worth our time to answer the question. But since this is sort of our forum and our chance to really address the question in a way that, you know, I think we we don't feel attacked, I will ask, aren't you worried you're promoting, quote unquote, and this is important, there are quotes around this word, obesity? Yes. So the quotes are super important. And I'll say first that I really hate the word obesity, and I know you do too. Mm -hmm. The etymology of the word obesity is very stigmatizing. It comes from a Roman word meaning like one who has eaten to corpulence or something like that. And so it's yeah. sort of one of the earliest connections of, of diet culture, you know, of, of body size and food, right, which we know now is not true. And it's become also, you know, in modern day used as a disease label, right? It's like, you know, there's this movement in, in healthcare now, really misguided movement, I think, to say like persons with obesity, meaning like, you know, like you would say persons with lung cancer or something like that, as though obesity is a disease and it's been labeled a disease by various healthcare organizations. And it's super, super problematic because people have existed on a bell curve of size since the dawn of time. And people in larger bodies are very much just on this bell curve of the sort of normal range of sizes that exist in the world. Size diversity is a fact of life. And to stigmatize and pathologize a certain body size by calling it a disease is extremely stigmatizing. And as we just discussed, weight stigma is a huge problem, right? So we need to we need to do everything we can to take the stigma off being in a larger body, both for people's physical health and mental health, right? And just also for, for justice, for social justice, which we'll talk about in a minute. But, you know, yeah, so I hate the word obesity. I like to say, you know, you've probably heard me in, in this episode already say, you know, people in larger bodies, which is a much more neutral descriptor, right, of like that that's, you know, their body size. They're in larger bodies. It's not saying anything about a judgment on the body size. I sometimes will use the word fat in the spirit of fat acceptance and the fat acceptance movement. I don't always use it myself as a person in a 
thin body because I find it sometimes, depending on where people are in their journey to body acceptance, that word can be triggering. That word is an epithet hurled at people in the schoolyard and used to bully. And so for people to make peace with that word is often a really personal journey. And so I talk with a lot of guests who have embraced the word fat from the spirit of fat acceptance and, and embrace that label for themselves. And I'll use that with them in that spirit. But talking to individuals, it's always sort of different. Everybody's at a different point in their journey. And I don't want anyone to feel like I'm triggering some some wounds from the past. And especially as a person in a thin body, like labeling someone as fat has some negative implications because of how it's been used in society before. So I'll just like I typically say larger bodied or person in a larger body unless I'm talking with someone where it's clear that we're using it in the spirit of fat acceptance. But anyway, you slice it, you know, a neutral term and, and fat acceptance is about embracing the idea of fat as a body type that is neutral, that doesn't have any moral value attached to it or health value attached to it, right? That it's just a, you know, thin and fat are descriptors, just like short and tall are descriptors or brown haired and blonde haired are descriptors or whatever, right? So yeah, that's my take on the word <laughs> obesity. And now to sort of the larger question, right, of promoting obesity, which is like, ooh, that is that is such a troll question. But people ask that because I think there's this idea, right, of obesity being a disease and that if you tell people to stop dieting, that it's going to make everyone suddenly be in a larger body, a.k.a. be diseased in this paradigm that they're coming from, this diet culture paradigm that they're coming from, right? A, that's not true, right? Because size diversity is a fact of human existence. And just as there are people who are naturally going to fall on the higher end of the size spectrum, there are also people who are naturally going to fall in the middle of the size spectrum and at the lower end of the size spectrum. And when they're eating intuitively and practicing non-diet approaches to to their health and practicing health at every size, their bodies are just going to end up where they're meant to end up, you know, from a genetic perspective and whatever environmental exposures they've had that have determined where their size is going to be in the past, right? We, we can't control our size now. We can only hope to take care of our health and just accept where our bodies end up. And so as a person in a thin body, right, like my whole family are in thin bodies. I've been in a thin body since I was a child, like there's no or since I was a baby, I guess. But like when I got back to intuitive eating and gave up restricting and dieting, I ended up in a thin body again. No surprise. Right. Because I was always in a thin body. So approaching health as a health at every size paradigm does not mean you're going to end up in a larger body. People's bodies are just going to end up where they end up. That's my point. But more importantly, too, I want to say I'm promoting people in all size bodies taking care of themselves to the best of their abilities and living free from weight stigma, right, that worsens their health. And so I want to promote people in larger bodies being excited about their bodies and living in their bodies in a joyful way and in a way that's not full of stigma and that, you know, people in larger bodies can accept their bodies and enjoy their bodies and enjoy their life, more importantly, without the the pressure and stigma from society, from healthcare professionals, from family, from internally, right, that the people are allowed to embrace and accept themselves. And so I'm I'm promoting people in larger bodies loving their bodies, certainly, or, you know, respecting, accepting, et cetera, that whole spectrum that we talked about, right? Maybe jumping to loving your body right now is not going to happen. But but I want that for you. You know, I want that for everybody. So yeah, I'm promoting people in larger bodies, like totally. But I'm also promoting <laughs> people in whatever size bodies living their life and being free from stigma and just doing great things in the world. 
Yeah, I think uh, one of your favorite quotes of mine <laughs> was in the latest Isabel Fox and Duke episode. You said, there's not an obesity epidemic. There's an epidemic of people fearing fatness. Mm-hmm. And I love that because I think that, you know, of course, you as as a previous health writer, you wrote a lot in, in the health field. As a journalist, you talked a lot about the obesity, quote unquote, obesity epidemic. And there's a lot of talk in, in the media right now about the obesity epidemic, and it's only contributing to stigma. And it's only contributing to poor health for those in larger bodies. And I think it's really important to reframe the conversation as you very succinctly did in that quote. So our next question, you've touched on this a little bit in our previous question. As a person in a smaller body, why are you so vocal about fat acceptance? Yeah, so important. So yeah, as I mentioned before, you know, I had my own eating disorder. I think that's a that's a big part of what brought me to this movement, right? So I know what it's like not to accept my body, even though I've always been in a thin body and always had society accept my body. And that's really thin privilege. That's what we call thin privilege, right? Is living in a thin body, you can move around in the world without being judged and stigmatized at every turn. Public spaces are built to accommodate your bodies in ways that people in larger bodies are not or the spaces are not built to accommodate larger bodies. So there's all these ways in which being in a thin body gives you privilege in our society. And yet I also had an experience of not accepting my body and thinking it was too big and thinking I needed to shrink it. And so having gone through that and having had body acceptance be such a huge part of my healing for my eating disorder and intuitive eating being such a huge part of healing and then working in the eating disorder treatment field where I recognized how detrimental weight stigma is to people and how much it drives eating disorders, but also other health outcomes and how negative it is and, you know, that we really need to stop weight stigma. That really shaped my view and that really made me become a vocal advocate for fat acceptance. And also, you know, as someone with thin privilege, I really want to use that privilege to help people overcome their own stigma. And unfortunately, because of weight stigma in our society, people in larger bodies who are speaking out about this stuff get a lot of hate. And, you know, I've seen this in my friends in this movement who are fucking brilliant, like Virgie Tovar, Reagan Chastain, Lindy West, like these people that are just killing it and are so smart and are speaking out about the same things that I'm speaking out about very eloquently and oftentimes more eloquently, you know, (laughs) and uh, they are really doing an amazing job, but they're also getting horrible hate from trolls and I forget who it was. One of those folks or maybe someone else told me that they've they've had death threats. I'm sure they've all had death threats, to be honest. Yeah. And and I think that that is just heartbreaking, you know, like the people that I've learned so much from and that have really shaped how I view this stuff and now want to go tell the world about it are getting so much trolling and pushback is because of of weight stigma, right? And that's what I want to help dismantle. And as an ally, as a thin ally to the fat acceptance movement, I have a role in that maybe I can, some people who are still rooted in weight stigma might be more willing to listen to what I have to say than they are to someone in a larger body. And hopefully that will change for them, you know, as they get deeper into this movement. And so that's one thing that I feel my role is to do is to say, well, okay, if you're willing to listen to me because of how my body looks, I'm just going to say the same stuff as these other people because that's what I believe (laughs) and introduce you to them. And and use my platform also to highlight these voices and center these voices of people who are doing and saying amazing shit. 
and then hopefully bring people along and and get them to a point where they can say, oh, wow, that kind of makes sense. Like actually or like that person's really cool or I really resonate with their experience or they have a lovely voice or they're really smart or whatever. Right. I think that can play, you know, some small role in helping to end stigma, too. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, as you sort of alluded to, the fat acceptance movement is very similar to all social justice movements in that allies and those with more privilege in the world, such as white people, for example, are unfortunately those who are given more respect and their their ideas are given more respect in this world. And so if a white person like yourself, myself, goes to bat for racism and, and is outspoken about those things, it's more likely that our fellow white counterparts will listen. Whereas if a Black individual speaks out about police brutality, they get piled on. And so, you know, I think it's important to use the power that we have unfortunately garnered just by living in a white supremacist world for good and try to to give up the power where we can. I think that's super, super important. Okay. So our last sort of section is a bit of a rapid fire of definitions. Obviously, we talk a lot, so it's probably not going to be that rapid, (laughs) but but we'll try. So very first one, what is healthism? Yeah. So healthism is like this religion of health that we were talking about a little bit before, right? The idea that health is the sort of supreme moral value and a moral arbiter that people who are healthy deserve more than people who are not healthy, whatever that means. And it's also discrimination based on health, right? So this, this idea of like, well, if you're in poor health, it's your fault. And you need to change that. And I shouldn't have to pay for your medical care through insurance pools or whatever. Oh, God, that that one infuriates me. Terrible, insidious rhetoric, right, which is also wrapped up in sizeism and discrimination based on body size and all that stuff. But so healthism is this, you know, it's an ism both in the sense of like a religion or a philosophy. And it's also an ism in the sense of like racism or sexism or homophobia or well, homophobia ends with a phobia but (laughs) gayism yeah (laughs) yeah you know what I mean but like you know it's it's a it's a discriminatory practice as well right okay diet culture what is diet culture We've said it a million times in the podcast, but have yet to define it. <laughs> I know. And I actually am writing something, you know, this thing I'm working on about the history of diet culture. I'm working to define it. So here's my working definition. It's a system of beliefs that equates thinness to health and moral virtue. So healthism is is part of it, right? That promotes weight loss as a means of attaining higher status and that demonizes certain ways of eating while elevating others. So that's that's my working definition. I'm sure that I'll add more to that as time goes on. But diet culture is a culture. So it's all around us. Right. Like David Foster Wallace had this great metaphor of like culture as the water that we're swimming in. Right. We're all fish and we can't see the water, but the water is all around us. And so we have to sort of become aware of it. So diet culture, as I've, I said earlier, is, is sort of a shapeshifter, right? It's, it used to be more above board in decades past, and now it's really shapeshifting into this clean eating, elimination diets, Whole30, paleo, gluten-free, all of these things that are saying they're not diets but are actually part of diet culture. So, yeah, that's, that's my summary of diet culture in a nutshell. Great, great, great. What is fat phobia? Yeah, so... Fat phobia is the fear of fat, but also discrimination against people in larger bodies. So like homophobia that I just said, you know, another thing that's <laughs> ends with phobia, phobia, the root of phobia means fear. 
But it's not just fear, right? In both cases, it's not just fear of people who are in those identities or groups. It's also discrimination against them. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about fat phobia this whole time, right? That like people's fear of fat leads them to dieting and restricting and eating disorders and all sorts of other unhealthy behaviors. But the reason that we have been sort of inculcated all of us to fear fat is because of what we've been told of about fat, which is discrimination and weight stigma, right? Which is that these horrible stereotypes about what it means to be fat or in a larger body that just aren't true, but that society continues to push in so many sneaky and subtle ways. And, you know, I can't even watch TV now without being like, oh, God, the fat phobia. I can't, <laughs> you know, it's like a someone just makes a casual joke offhandedly and it's like, ah, crap, it's here too, you know? So yeah, fat phobia, like diet culture, is all around us. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge uh, Potterhead, like crazy Harry Potter fan. <laughs> and I reread the books like every summer, basically. <laughs> and it hurts my heart, the fat phobia that's embedded mm. in those books, especially with the, the Dursleys. If anyone's a Potterhead out there, you know what I'm talking about. I know. When you first said Potterhead, I was like, what? <laughs> now <laughs> I get it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm using fandom language to those. This is not appropriate. Yeah, Harry Potter. Okay, so this question I'm going to elongate it a little bit from what you have in front of you, Christy. What is body liberation and why have you decided to use body liberation instead of body positivity? Mm, such a good question. And I still, you know, there's still certainly places where I'll use body positivity, but in my language and my podcast, you know, most of the time now I'm saying body liberation instead. This is Jess Baker's term, who I think we referenced earlier, who's a past podcast guest, but it's her alternative that she coined to body positivity, which body positivity, that term started out with great intentions, but it it has, as Virgie Tovar talked about in episode 100, it also had a lot of of flaws from the get-go, like a lot of places where it was borrowing from fat acceptance, which was a much more, and fat liberation, really, which was a much more radical movement, and sort of applying those principles to eating disorder recovery and body acceptance for people of all sizes. But it kind of left out a lot of the more important and radical elements of fat liberation, which were centering the voices of people in larger bodies and making it destigmatizing fatness, right? And so body positivity over the years from its beginnings as as sort of a root of the health at every size movement. Actually, I, I talked with Connie Subchak on a previous episode too, who was one of the leaders of that early non-diet health at every size movement who used the term, you know, she has an organization called The Body Positive and coined that term from really great reasons and has really great roots in fat acceptance and health at every size and anti-diet movements. But over the years, the term body positive or body positivity has been co-opted and sort of filtered out into the mainstream to the point where it's really losing its meaning. And it's a double-edged sword because I think it's really great that more and more people are hearing about the concept or learning about the concept of being able to accept your body and being able to love your body no matter what it looks like and stuff like that. But the way that it's interpreted in practice often is here are the bodies that get to be body positive, right? The bodies that represent body positivity are increasingly white, thin, able-bodied, young, hetero, cisgender, you know, all of these things that are sort of the face of body positivity has become very tied up in, in those identities and fewer and fewer people who are centered in the quote-unquote body positive movement that's gone mainstream diverge from those identities in meaningful ways, meaning people who are of color and in larger bodies and transgender and 
older or whatever, you know, like people who have identities that don't fit into that box have not been centered as the face of body positivity. And that's problematic, right? And there are people who are still, you know, it's it's a really nuanced discussion because there are people who are still using the term body positive that are much truer to that social justice and inclusive and intersectional way of talking about it. Like Connie Subcheck at The Body Positive really believes in those values and ideals. You know, Amber Carnes of Body Positive Yoga, who I know has had some issues or qualms or, or, you know, thought about changing the name as she's discussed in her writing. But like Body Positive Yoga is a brand also and it, it people can recognize what it is. Right. And, and so she's wrestling with that. But she's also firmly committed to these values of social justice and intersectionality, which is another buzzword I'm using, but it means that we all exist at the intersection of multiple identities and also multiple oppressions, right? So I have a lot of privilege, right? I'm white, cisgender, straight, relatively young, able-bodied, socioeconomically okay, but I also am a woman, right? And so being a a cis woman is a, a way that many people in our society are oppressed, right? Because we live in a patriarchy, and so cis and trans women have multiple means of oppression and sexism that we face in the world. And so navigating my identities, right, I have one area of oppression that I've experienced quite a bit in my life of sexism, but also many, many privileges that allow me to navigate the world in an easier way than people who have other intersecting identities, right? So that's a little little side note there, but I think the word intersectionality is super important too. But anyway, body liberation, getting back to that, you know, so the idea of body liberation really encompasses more intersectionality and more radicalism and centers this idea of liberation that people in all bodies deserve to be free from oppression and stigma. And I think Jess Baker has probably a more longer and more eloquent discussion of why she came up with this term. But, you know, in my take and my use of it, I like the use of it. I, you know, I love the word fat liberation, too, and I love the fat liberation movement and concept. But I also recognize that, you know, some people listening to the podcast and interacting with my work don't identify with that word for whatever reason, whether they're in smaller bodies and recovering from eating disorders, and that's why they're drawn to this work that I'm doing, or whether they're in larger bodies, but the word fat is really problematic to them and it's not something they are ready to embrace. And so I like the word body liberation because it it centers the idea of liberation and freedom from stigma and oppression and also body, you know, all bodies, right? So all bodies belong here. And that includes bodies with disabilities, trans bodies, bodies of color, bodies of other sexual orientations, you know, all of these ways, all of these identities, all of these intersecting intersecting identities are welcome under the umbrella of body liberation. Great. The only thing I'll add to that is when you were talking about the different body types that aren't really embraced, I would also include that larger fat people and in the term in the community is like big fatty versus small fatties. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and as well as people who have hourglass shapes, which are more traditionally accepted and are in larger bodies versus maybe apple shapes, pear shapes. I don't, I don't like comparing people to fruits, but uh, I think everyone will know what I mean when I say that. Yeah. That is so important. I'm glad you brought that up. That's that's a really good nuance to add. Yeah. And then just, I guess, to continue the discussion you were just having, because you sort of already answered this question, but why is body liberation and or body positivity a social justice movement? I guess you could see you, you kind of already answered that up if you wanted to add something to it. 
Yeah, I pretty much I pretty much you have been talking about it the whole time, right? I feel like it's kind of baked into the work I do at this point. But but yeah, you know, it's it's just to sort of reiterate like it's a social justice movement because stigma and discrimination on the basis of size harm people just like other forms of oppression and stigma and discrimination, right? So race, gender, sexual orientation, et cetera. And people live at the intersection of these multiple identities. And so discrimination can be even more pronounced if people are members of multiple oppressed groups, including size. And even, I mean, this is like getting way, way deep with it, but there are ways in which size discrimination can sort of cloak racial discrimination or discrimination on the basis of gender, right? And maybe this, I mean, we're already like way over time, so we don't really have time to go into this here, but hopefully I'll go and do it on a future episode. But, you know, size discrimination is sort of tangled up and can sometimes be a a guise for other forms of discrimination too. And also, I really, I really think it's important to highlight that, you know, for people who consider themselves progressive or social justice minded and are fighting against other forms of oppression and consider themselves, you know, anti-racist and anti-gender discrimination and all this other stuff, we need to also look at how we can root out size discrimination, both in society and within ourselves. So Melissa Toller, who was a past guest on the podcast and is coming back really soon. Yeah, she's so awesome. (laughs) And she's going to talk more about this in her episode, too. So I don't want to, you know, presage that too much. But she had a great piece that she wrote about fat phobia in woke spaces. Right. And so, you know, seeing these spaces where people consider themselves woke, meaning social justice minded and working to to root out oppression of all kinds, but still having fat phobia run unchecked in those spaces. So I really think it's important for anyone listening who considers themselves someone who fights for social justice or progressive in any way that that's one form of oppression we need to really recognize and highlight as something that needs equal rights and the same protections as every other form of identity. Awesome. Okay. Very, very, very last question. (laughs) How does feminism and femme empowerment factor into all of this? Yes. Good question. So women historically and still bear the brunt of diet culture, and that includes trans women as well. And of course, now men and trans men and gender nonconforming folks are also feeling more pressure. And as we talked about earlier, too, there's pressures within the trans community independent of of gender pressures, like the rates of eating disorders among trans folks is actually higher. I think I read a statistic that is higher than even in cis women, which was previously considered, right, as the highest, the highest group. So, So that's a huge piece, too. But, you know, so I want to say it's not just feminism. It's intersectional feminism. It's feminism that embraces other gender identities as well. And so I try to always say, like, people of all genders when I'm talking about this stuff. But, but, you know, historically, there was this gender binary of male and female, right? And women were pushed into this role of domesticity and subservience to men. And, and, you know, a lot of times people will, like— when you first hear about the patriarchy and sexism, it can be a lot to swallow and you can be like, really? But the men in my life are cool, right? I used to think, you know, when I was younger, my mom's a feminist and she would try to talk to me about feminism when I was a teenager. And I'd be like, that's old stuff. That's not happening anymore, you know? (laughs) And as I got older and wiser and experienced the world more, I started to realize, oh, sexism has also gone underground, just like diet culture, right? In a lot of ways, like it's more subtle these days and sometimes very overt and sometimes really dangerous, right? Because women and and femmes can be much more are are much more likely to experience sexual assault and 
brutality of all kinds, you know, it's it's bad, right? All kinds of violence, yeah. All kinds of violence, yeah. So there is some real institutionalized sexism in this culture that we don't really have time to get into here, but like... Definitely not. <laughs> just to say, you know, people, cis women, trans women, people of all genders too, need to be empowered to buck beauty standards and push back against diet culture. And those beauty standards have historically been the most oppressive to women and femmes. And now they're becoming more and more oppressive to men and male identified people as well, right? Like the diet industry and diet culture has recognized that the male market is this untapped market that they can they can market to. And we're seeing a rise in incidents and eating disorders among men and male identified people. And we're seeing, you know, a rise in media that's promoting this really unattainable ideal for men and what their bodies, quote unquote, should look like. And so it's bad all around, but it has historically and still is worse on a societal level towards women and femmes because the most diet culture marketing and the most oppressive beauty standards are aimed at women and femmes. And it's, I'm sure a lot of us have experienced that and can kind of come up with examples from our own lives, right? Yeah. And I would also say specifically women and and femmes of color. Yes. Misogynoir is, is really insidious and really baked into diet culture, especially in terms of colorism and, and the like. Yeah, I'm hoping to talk more about that on a future episode. And that's, you know, certainly more than we have time to get into here. We've gone from like the very basics to like (laughs) the deep stuff. So I'm glad I, you know, I hope that this was like a crash course for people new to these movements in just like what are some of the ideas here, but not to overwhelm people because, you know, you got hundreds of or more than 120 some odd podcast episodes to listen to that will go into more of it. Yeah, there's there's a lot here, but I think we covered a lot. And I think it's okay that this one's longer. It's 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 the food psych FAQ. Yeah, totally. <laughs> this is the yeah, the like the entry point, the uh, welcome station for everyone. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, it's been fun. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much, Ashley. Happy to be here. So that's our show. But before you go, I have a couple quick things I want to share. First, our amazing sponsor, Bobble Bar, made this episode possible, so definitely check them out. They design premium fashion jewelry and accessories and make it easy to experiment with different styles. They offer free U.S. shipping and returns, so you can really try them out to your heart's content before you commit. Just go to BobbleBar.com and get 20% off using the promo code PSYCH. That's B-A-U-B-L-E-B-A-R.com and get 20% off using promo code P-S-Y-C-H. If you want some more guidance from me on putting the principles of intuitive eating and health at every size into practice, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. This is my quick start guide to intuitive eating and health at every size. So if you're looking for some practical tips to launch your anti-diet journey, this is the place to go. Head over to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it, or you can text seven strategies, all one word, to the phone number 44222. That's the number seven and the word strategies all together to the phone number 44222. To get full show notes from this episode, including all of the amazing resources we discussed, because we talked about a lot of resources here, head over to christyharrison.com slash 127. That's christyharrison.com slash 127. Thanks again so much to Ashley Saroya for joining us on this episode and for being my incredible administrative and community manager. Couldn't do my work without her. And thanks, of course, to you for listening. Food Psych is edited and engineered by the amazing folks at Podcast Fast Track, and our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. 
The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no